Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the WCA podcast, Holy Conversations. We're so glad you've joined us for another edition of our adventure through the new Methodism, and we've been talking to lots of really awesome people as we're moving toward uh, the new year. We're getting ready to wrap up season one, and we've got a special treat for you today, uh, someone we've, we really look forward to interviewing. Stephanie, why don't you introduce our guest today? I would love to do that. It is my honor. So we are going to be visiting today with Lo Alleman, and he is an artist, a poet, a conference speaker. Many of you will have remembered hearing him at the New Room Conference. He's also the community life director for the Harvest Community, which is a part of the Woodlands UMC in Houston, Texas. And I just have to say, so Lo, I was excited because I looked you up, and so I was watching some of your stuff. And in one of your... Um, times that you were speaking, you said that you've been doing like this spoken word poet ministry, which I love, like it is so awesome. But you said in this talk that you were giving that if you're not familiar with what a spoken word poet is, it's basically like when hip hop and poetry have a love child. And I thought that was awesome because <laughs> it's so true. It is so what it is. And Lo has also written a book of poems that's coming out and it's entitled, We Sang a Dirge, Poems, Laments, and Other Things That Matter to God. So Lo, welcome. We're really glad to have you here today. How are you doing? So good. Y'all make me sound way cooler than I am. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you are definitely way cool. And I'm excited for you to just share some different things with us. Um, but first of all, I just want to start off saying, you know, a lot of us have been blessed and challenged in hearing your spoken word poetry. I am definitely one of those as I listen to you, the beauty of, of the art form that you perform. It just, it touches people's spirits in a really special way. So can you just tell us a little bit about your faith journey and what led you to poetry as a medium for your expression? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so I, I was born in California and I moved to Mississippi when I was 11. Um, and so I was, I was born in Cali, but I was raised in Mississippi and uh, that was a culture shock. Very weird, uh, very weird move for sure. Um, I was raised by just my mom, so I had a single parent home. My mom was like, hey, I'm going to send you to the South to toughen you up. And I had an uncle out there who was, uh, who I loved, um, but man, it was really hard on me. And so like I had to play football and was like thrusted into the whole like Bible Belt Christianity thing. And I, I didn't really find much of a space um, naturally me. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I watched 8 Mile and I, I watched wilding out and I saw a bunch of like rap videos and I was like oh, I can give it a shot and so in the field house we were playing football I would do like rap battles with friends and it was super fun um I probably wasn't great but I beat them so that was cool and so I always kind of had an affinity for like hip-hop culture and uh rap music and tried my hand at making a couple of wax songs um as you do when you're a kid and yeah there's just a vibe about that that was very not my traditional um, it didn't match with the traditional church setting that I was actually a part of. And so I got to college my freshman year and was kind of done with faking the funk of it all. And uh, my mom wasn't there to make me go to church, so I just didn't. Um, and had a really rough time my first year just kind of figuring out life and partied way too much and didn't do school all that much. Um, so I had to go to summer school, try to fix all the wrong I'd done and was just really just empty and had a lot of anxiety and a lot of trauma that I was still dealing with in the past. And I remember uh, the only people that were on campus still in the summer was this group of kids who were 
followers of Jesus, but they were also artists. And yeah, they just invited me to hang out with them. And I didn't even like Jesus at the time, but I needed community, needed friends. And yeah. so I started hanging out with them. And over time, just felt like God was pursuing my heart through uh, different people, um, through their art, through the mediums of what they were creating. And yeah, I remember a friend named April. I was like, hey, you should try writing poetry. Um, Cause I, I'd kind of sworn off rap. It didn't seem like it fit with what Jesus wanted for me to do. Um, also, Christian rap was super cheesy back then, so I wanted no parts of that. It's cool. True. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so so my friend was like, hey, try poetry out. I gave it a shot and probably wasn't great at it at first, but kept writing and kept trying it out. And um, I remember one time I shared a poem and I felt like God had like ministered through it. And I was like, all right, God, if you're if you're doing that, then let's keep at it. Um, I'll, I'll do this as long as you let me. So yeah, it was fun and it became like a hobby that turned into like a ministry that turned into like a vocational thing Like I got paid to do it, which was cool. Um, and yeah, it's something I felt like God moved in and blessed me with because like I could like journal and write poems in my devotion time with him. And the more I became aware of who God was calling me to be, uh, the more that kind of found a home and something I wanted to spend time doing. So it's been cool. It's been a cool journey. The first time I heard you was at New Room. Uh, the New Room Conference a few years ago. And I kept wondering, are you making that up on the spot? Or were those things that you had written in advance? Because I thought, this is so powerful. Not, not only, I mean, even if it was written in advance, the fact to be able to memorize it and the, and the spacing and the, you know, the way that the words flow was just so powerful. It was very musical in a sense. Yeah. So that's a it's, neat it's aspect of that. Yeah, that's that's where that love child metaphor comes from, right? The yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, you've got a new book. Uh, is it out now or is it coming out? December third. December third. Uh, the book yeah. is called "We Sang a Dirge," and if you've heard Lowe's poems, this is a collection of poems, really centered on the events of 2020, uh, which is really apt for the moment, and so. There are poems about racial unrest, the protests, politics, the pandemic, police brutality. So a lot of people are writing tons of stuff about this all the time, particularly in the Christian world. People are always like, here's what we need to do and here's how this is going to work. So how does this medium of poetry communicate differently than, say, a traditional book of prose that people would write about this and give policy or what have you? How does poetry strike a different chord? Yeah, well, I, I think we're all on the same page as far as saying there's nothing under the sun, like racial tension is not a new thing. Um, people politicizing tragedy is not a new thing. Um, those aren't really the unprecedented things that we're experiencing. What I think is unique about where we are is 2020 has kind of caused everyone to slow down um, and made it to where some things it's kind of hard to hide from um, because a lot of us were kind of on our phones. We kind of all saw videos as they were surfacing. Um, I would also say that we're in a, a point in time where there has just never been information as accessible as it is to us. Like that's just never been a thing. And so whereas the issues at hand aren't necessarily new, the access we have to both information and misinformation is kind of different. Um, facts and truth presented as truth or presented as facts just doesn't kind of have the same weight that it used to have because um, everything is kind of subjective. And you have one source of media telling you one thing about the same event and another source of media telling you another thing. And so 
facts or reason or logic in and of itself, I think it's just, it's too flimsy a tool for it to be our only tool. Um, and for me, I think art just presents a different thing. It's a different medium that I think God, God speaks through prose and God speaks through uh, any of these 15,100 page books people are writing. I'm all for that. I don't have the attention span for it, um, but I think it's awesome. Uh, I think God speaks in both of it. I think this art is a unique kind of perspective that I think we have not always known how to appreciate with our generation of the church. Um, so if you look at like old cathedrals and how intricate the architecture is or how uh, much emphasis was placed on what we would call classical art that has so much Christian undertones to it. They recognize that there was an illiterate culture. People aren't reading. And so if we're going to communicate the gospel, we have to be really intentional with the art that we present. And I think we're in a place where we have a spiritually illiterate culture. And because uh, fact is so subjective now that just trying to give somebody understanding without giving them empathy and compassion and uh, helping them to actually feel another person feels uh, like it's hard to tell somebody, Hey, you should mourn with somebody who needs to, you, you should mourn with um, versus putting them in that position of feeling what they feel and experiencing. And I think what, what poetry tends to do is invite us to experience. Um, so my book is not an argument book at all. There's very few arguments in there uh, and there's almost no solutions. Um, it's simply an invitation uh, to celebrate with people who are celebrating. That's the whole thing Jesus is getting at in, in that parable about the kingdom. He's like, kids are singing happy songs, dance with them. Kids are singing sad songs, singing dirges, funeral songs, like mourn with them. And so it's, it's just an invitation to that, to feel the celebration that I think the kingdom of heaven invites us to, to feel the mourning that I think the kingdom of heaven invites us to. There's, there's space to have all kinds of opinions about the political issues that are happening right now and just the culture and the climate right now. There is no space for apathy within the kingdom of heaven. And so I think this is just an invitation to feel and to be present and to allow God to sort out, hey, this is truth. Um, I need you to keep in step with my spirit as I'm speaking truth. So, yeah. I love that. I think that that's just totally awesome. And it really does, this type of art and poetry, it really does help you to feel things in ways that other things can't. It's kind of like music. I mean, music just speaks to the heart and soul of all people. It's just incredible. So as we're kind of talking about some of the um, the racial unrest in the country, you wrote that after George Floyd was killed, that you had a hard time keeping your phone charged because of all the calls and texts that you were getting about the event and everything that had transpired after that. So Tell us, what did you hope to share with people through that crisis when they were contacting you? How did you, how did you help them to gain perspective? And has your own perspective changed in the months since then? Yeah, I think the first thing I realized is that I was the only black friend for a lot of white people, um, which was <laughs> yeah. an interesting revelation. I, I, and I guess my, my initial reaction to the George Floyd video, because I feel like people in the African-American community uh, may may see these events through a different lens. Um, I think that there was a, a season where it just seemed like it was like never ending um, from Ahmaud Arbery to Breonna Taylor to George Floyd to Jacob Blake. Like those names kind of became really popular in the span of like two months. And that seemed abnormal for most of my white counterparts. Um, but I think it was not abnormal for anybody with my shade of skin. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I, my initial reaction was kind of, I was kind of celebrating that it wasn't just black people who were wrestling with these stories. What kind of broke me a little bit was that the narrative 
of how these stories were being wrestled with was I'm so sorry for you. Like there was a an unspoken reality that this is my problem and not our problem. You know, like I expect you to be grieving because somebody who looked like you just died. And so a lot of where I was speaking with people initially was I, I, I needed them to recognize that I am not the only person that should be lamenting. And if I'm the only person that's lamenting, that's a sign of a deeper problem, you know? And, and we kind of talk about this in the book a little bit where there is a, a weird language that we've created. Like we don't even see how bizarre it is to say things like black church or white church. But for Jesus, that would be really weird. That would be a really weird thing to say. Yeah. Um, and so to say things like black issues or, or white issues, like that's, that's a really strange narrative that we've gotten really comfortable with. And so much of my conversation was just painting George Floyd as a human. Same thing with Ahmaud Arbery, painting him as a human. Um, much of uh, time spent was not trying to, I think, because a political ideology would encourage you to either demonize a person or deify them, make them all perfect or make them all bad. And that's just not the reality of the human experience. Um, and so sharing, you know, my own particular interaction with law enforcement to share uh, my interaction with um, being in all white spaces, even places that I worship and, I, and my, where I'm employed, uh, it's, a, it's a all white space. I used to say it's a majority white, it's an all white space. Um, <laughs> and, and it comes through a certain, uh, that being called a, 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 a normal thing, I guess being complacent with that is a strange thing to, to, to think about. Um, there's a line in, in the book uh, that we're, we're welcoming people to, to an ugly club of names grieved only by us in heaven. Um, it's weird that we are the only ones who are expected to be grieving in these instances. And so a lot of my white brothers and sisters saw themselves as, hey, let me come and support you as opposed to grieve with you because they didn't feel a call to grieve themselves. And that was the initial kind of frustration that I felt. Um, I think it changed over time to a bit of sensitivity um, to wanting to help my brothers and sisters of any shade to realize, hey, this is something we're collectively wrestling with, um, whether you recognize it or not. So the image of God who has been uh, unjustly killed, and no matter how you frame um, you know, your, your political views, your theology should say, this person's made in the image of God, and the loss of life grieves us deeply. Um, and the idea that there are people who are being divided over an issue of something that is plainly unjust um, sh should should trouble us um, and should cause us to, if nothing else, be in prayer for our country, um, that we'll begin to reconcile our, our hearts towards God and understand what Jesus invites us to with the ministry of reconciliation. doesn't mean we all agree on everything, but it does mean that we have a desire for unity and oneness in the body. Um, that if anything gets in the way of that, we let that go before we let unity go. I, I I think there's a powerful thing there, what you just said, because you, you're talking about the collective kind of grief that needs to happen. It's not about one, one or the other. That sense of, I, I mean, I was preaching out of Revelation the other day, um, getting ready for, for Advent and that Revelation 7 passage, uh, the saints of every tribe and tongue and nation. So here's the, here's the vision of the kingdom but why don't we live that here? If that's the way it's going to be forever, why, why are we not living that in the moment? And, uh, and I felt that sense in reading your poems that these are very much like Psalms, uh, very much 21st century Psalms. Because we think of poetry in, in my sort of rudimentary poetic 
understanding. I was a history major, so I, I don't know that much about poetry. But I was like, well, where's the rhyme? Well, the Psalms don't rhyme. Maybe they do in Hebrew in some places. I don't know, but they don't. Um, and, and that's the difference because there's a, but there's a, a use of the language in the midst of them that has that power to them. And particularly I was reading David Taylor's book on the Psalms when COVID hit and the Psalms of lament that mm. that word is one that we have not grabbed onto very much, particularly until recent years. And so I read your book and I think, man, these are, powerful psalms of lament or like the book of lamentations for the the 21st century and so uh i, I want to talk a little bit about a lament why is it important for us us collectively together as you have said to lament and how has our failure to lament with the black community contributed to the constant cycle of injustice we see today man that's huge i i, I would say a number of things as far as consequences of not lamenting starting with just like what where we get things wrong i often feel is we have an assumption that it's our job to make a case for god like we have to like show that god is good and show that god is holy and show that god is just when god at least through scripture says that he does a job his, himself like creation is seen the praises of god like god is is seen as good through like like roman says like all of the the visible things are showing the qualities of the invisible god so, so God's good on him being just and holy. Um, he doesn't really need us to do that part. I think we even have like a weird kind of way we talk about Jesus, like we're supposed to make him famous. Like most folks know who he is in some sense. Um, so the responsibility to kind of give an apologetic for God's goodness, I think often restricts us from expressing when things just suck. Because if we say things suck, the assumption is, well, why doesn't God fix it? And in scripture, uh, the overall narrative is that the cause for sin and death is not on God. It's on us. So expressing lament and mourning and frustration, at least for the biblical authors, it's housed in an expectation for God's goodness and a recognition that we have gone astray. It doesn't say anything bad about God. And I think we're so timid that we're afraid to say, hey, God, I am hurting and broken. Things are not okay right now. Um, and that doesn't say anything bad about God. In fact, God invites us to that. Cast your cares upon me because I care for you deeply. There's an invitation for us to tell him, this is not good. This is broken. This is messed up. Uh, and I need a God who is bigger than my brokenness to come and do something about that. I think for an individual, that invitation, I think we love. I think as a collective people, I think we get a little, a little timid about it. Um, we love the idea of God saving a sinner. Um, I hope you hope you love that idea. It's a good idea, <laughs> um, but but the idea that that sin is among among us and there's a problem in, in our community, our society is unhealthy. I think we feel like it's a betrayal of God to call it out because we're like God's people, quote unquote. Um, but that's kind of what the prophets do, and they talk about how trash the people of God are. <laughs> like like you guys are getting this wrong, and so I think there's I think there is a call to to kind of get away from this idea of defending God versus letting him be God and let our, like put ourselves in our proper perspective. Like God seems a lot bigger when we put ourselves in our proper perspectives and we seem a lot smaller when we put him in his proper perspective. And so I think that's the first thing. Second thing I would say too is we don't actually, if we don't lament, we rob ourselves from actually experiencing a lot of God. So Matthew 5, 4, uh, Jesus says, like, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that, that word for comfort is the same as the Holy Spirit. Like we're invited to experience the Holy Spirit, a portion of his comfort, a portion of his grace through mourning. Like, there's a whole 
component of God that we do not experience if we only give him our happy stuff, you know? Um, and if we only call out the happy things in our, our, our community, uh, there, there's Psalm 34, 18, you know, and, and invited to see God as near to the brokenhearted. Why is he near them? Because they have reason to be brokenhearted. Like he's, he, he's not off put by that. And so I think we rob ourselves from an experience of God. So when we start to evangelize and tell people about the witness of God, we make a case for, you know, oh, God's going to be for you in heaven, but not with you in this current brokenness. And that, that doesn't seem to fit within the teachings of Jesus. Um, I think there is, there is no way to accept the gospel without limit. I don't see how you do it. Because uh, there's a call to confess and repent. And if you don't know what part you play and what part you, we as a people play in sin, I don't see what you're confessing uh, or what you're repenting from. I think we all have something to turn away from individually and collectively. So the idea of like systemic racism or there being a kind of uh, prejudice amongst policing, um, there being some wonky, rightly theological, but also really broken ways in which our country is founded upon some stuff. Like there is a collective repentance that probably should take place. But if our hearts are hard towards that, then I don't think we actually receive the healing God wants from us. Uh, so part of like where our culture has been kind of wounded um, and, 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 and hurting is we can admit some sins of the past that we never confessed or repented from. We may have like slowly said, that's not okay anymore. Um, but it wasn't a collective confessing, oh, this is sin. Oh, we're broken in this. I think there's been a weird allegiance with like grandparents or ide ideals from like a past generation that we don't know how to reconcile all the time. Uh, and so what we have is a people who minister from their wounds. I think you can minister great through scars. Scars tell a story, they point to signs of healing, but if you're ministering from a place that's still broken and still wounding, like you're not allowing that to heal. And so whereas I think God has healing, it only comes when we confess and repent, it only comes when we lament and mourn before him. That's how we receive the comfort. Uh, when we don't do that, when we kind of make things like all pie in the sky, everything's perfect, it's, it's a weak, watered-down gospel. Jesus has not come to save us from watered-down sins, from the ugly, disgusting things of individual lives and the collective thing, right? Like all of that, all of that ugliness, um, I think is where we're called to accept grace in. That, I think, comes to confession. I think lament's a part of that. It's a, it's a worshipful confession. Um, that we have gone astray, that things are not as they should be. And we have a holy expectation that God is near to the brokenhearted, that God will redeem, that he comes to seek and save that which is lost. And so lament is, it's housed in hope and expectation for God to be just. Um, and so I think there is a worship in that. So yeah, I think we've called an ugly thing ugly, forgetting that ugly things can be beautiful um, when we give them to God. And I think it's a part of why Christian art is typically cheesy, because it's very superficial and it doesn't go deep to the actual human experience. Um, and Jesus comes as fully God and fully man. So it's an invitation, um, for even our ugly humanity. Um, it can interact in communion with deity, uh, and with God's grace. So I think it's an invitation for a good adventure, a good experience, um, that we don't always know how to say yes to. Yeah. We always want to run quickly to the happy ending and the, the Psalms yeah. don't always do that either. You know, I, no. I was, I was reading, um, Esau Macaulay's book, Reading While Black, yeah. Um, which is a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it um, as, a, as a prose expression. And he talks about Psalm 137 as an example, you know, the, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept and that, that that's such a powerful, and I'd never, I'd never thought of that. I always think of that in terms of Israel and exile, but how important mm -hmm. that is to the black community. And then I read David Blight's uh, biography of Frederick Douglass, which is also mm -hmm. phenomenal 
and, and how much, you know, in, in the abolition movement and things like that. And Douglas, who was a slave, who, you know, uh, escaped slavery, talks about Psalm 137 being so important in the midst of that. Mm. And so, so th- that voice um, spoke to me in a more powerful way because I'd always just sort of associated that with, with Israel. But for the Black community, those are, those are expressions of deep grief and they're not resolved. Like Psalm 137 doesn't end with a happy ending. Psalm 88 doesn't end with a happy ending. It calls oh. us to feel the pain. Yeah. How long, Lord, is one of the most unanswered questions in scripture. Like, how long? We're waiting. We have no idea how long it's going to be. And, and, and I think I, I, at least, when I grew up in a black church, my experience is we are in the, in the tension of the now and the not yet, right? Like, we, we, we recognize that God is doing something right now, and it's amazing, and it's, on, and it's awesome. But there's also a not yet. We're still hoping for something, right? I think that tension is what the children of Israel felt. I think it's what we as followers of Jesus feel uh, when we're honest about what the kingdom is and where we currently are and how there's signs of it, windows, it's near, um, but it's, it's the now and not yet. And I, and I think there is, a, there is a very real tension that we're called to wrestle with in that, that I think is beautiful and it glorifies God and it gives us that holy longing. When we don't do that, we find ourselves with a watered down gospel that I, 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 and I think we also find ourselves casting ourselves in, in the stories of scripture in the wrong light. Um, like I, I could see how Frederick Douglass could read that Psalm and find himself in that position. I don't see how a slave owner could, but I think right. maybe he did, you know? Right. right. Yeah. He talks about that a lot in his, in his autobi- autobiographical work, how, mm-hmm. how you could use the same text and, and have a completely different worldview um, surrounding it that forces you to read that, that channels you're reading and in some sense into reading it and not hearing the pain within it. Yeah. 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 I also think it's so interesting. I love how you tie together this idea of lamenting as an act of worship that's tied to confession and repentance that leads us on to hope. Like the whole thing just fits all together. And if we leave out the lamenting, we just leave out this huge peace that God wants us to have. I mean, I just think it's brilliant. And so in, in your poem, called 20. Uh, It's one of the most memorable in the book. And it's this mix of like a bleak reality, but also hope for the future. So that balancing out these two. So how do you personally keep that balance um, between holding our society accountable while staying hopeful for what tomorrow may bring? Yes. So I I think this answer might actually satisfy. (laughs) I've been reading a lot in Romans uh, Romans 5, 5 has been a particular kind of encouragement for me um, that we have this hope and it doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. So our, our hope is not in so much our circumstance or our political climate or any of those things. Our hope is in the Holy Spirit and the love of God that is being poured out in this visual we get of like, again, there's no restriction on how much God is pouring out his spirit, how much he's pouring out his love. And I think for me, I am openly, um, I called myself what is it, uh, politically agnostic. Um, I don't have, I don't <laughs> I have that. full, That's com- great. <laughs> <laughs> full confidence that things are going to make sense in a political climate. I think we should, you know, vote your conscience, be involved, all that good stuff. Um, but our hope doesn't really come in those places. And in fact, I would say that those things are areas where we need more Christian influence, more people who are filled with the spirit of God to go and be empowered and enlivened in those places. 
I feel like we've placed our hope in places that we're supposed to be working on, um, as opposed to being filled by the Spirit of God and going to work in those places. So I, I have no, I have no um, dichotomy of, or false dichotomy of, you know, the world is going crazy and my hope should be in there. Like, that's not a thing for me. For me, it's supposed to go crazy because um, hope compels me to go to the brokenness, you know? Um, like hope should send me to the brokenness. Uh, best visual I have for this right now is my daughter uh, is almost two years old and she is a trip. She's beautiful, she's amazing, but she is an absolute trip. I thought you looked tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, if I look tired now, we have one on the way. I don't even know Ooh. what that's gonna do. Yeah, <laughs> we'll pray for you. <laughs> so my daughter just discovered raisins. And when you're eating raisins, it's like they get like clunked up in there. You know, you got to like dig them out. And she doesn't know how to do that. And so in her mind, like she wants me to help her get the raisins out, but she doesn't want to let the raisins go. Like for me to actually like get the stuff out. And so if I say, hey, give me the raisins, she like reaches out and like, hands it to me. And she's like, nah, you may not give it back. <laughs> like for her, if, if I let it go, then who's gonna take care of it? If I let it go, I may not have it anymore. I think that's how we tend to think about mm-hmm. our, 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 our hope in this world. Um, it's not that we were apathetic and our hands are off, but the first person who actually should put a hand to it, the first person that can actually do some of the scooping and get some of the really, like the crud out, that's God. And so giving it to him first, putting like, letting my hope go before me. That's a, that's a consistent prayer uh, in the Old Testament. Like they pray, like, Lord, go before us. Like you fix it first. And then I come in and do like, like you do the heavy lifting. I can do all the easy stuff. And so my hope is uh, if the spirit of God is there, uh, if his love is poured out, then whatever the circumstance looks like, I'm, I'm cool with it. Um, I, I, I know he worked all out for the good of those that love him. So I'm, I'm not really tripping off that. I think that there becomes less of a, a, a weirdness about calling things broken when they're broken. Because my hope is not in them. I can say that's messed up because I know like, God can fix it. Um, so with the with the current you know political climate and the weird racial tension and all that stuff like that, I think as churches who are afraid to speak into it, um, I, I think I think it shows a lack of confidence in God. Not because we think God is like only caring about those things, but how we flesh out our call to Jesus. It, it's kind of seen in how we do life with our neighbors, how we love those who are around us. So, yeah, uh, for me, I, I have my hope is in Him. Um, I know I'm tripping. A lot of the time, I know a lot of this world is tripping a lot of the time. Um, but I, I think that he, he's working all things together should our hearts be postured towards him. So, yeah, I'm I'm, trying, I'm handing him my box of raisins. <laughs> Hopefully he does good. <laughs> That's good. That's the perfect illustration. I, I will definitely steal that and quote you on it because I think it's <laughs> a phenomenal illustration. Um, oh, and cool. I, and I, I, there's just so much of that kind of visual imagery that that you bring forth. And... Um, and I, and I want to kind of turn us ahead because a lot of people are asking the question, I'm sure they're asking it of you. So what do we do next? What's the next Mm -hmm. thing we need to do? And, um, you talk in your poem, particularly in the poem and now what, which was along with 20, one of the most compelling for me in the, in the collection, they're all phenomenal, but this one especially spoke to me and there was a line in the poem that uh, stood out to me and I highlighted it. It's the, the line goes like this. The church is deciding to awaken, to die to complacency like Christ died to sin. 
There's a kingdom coming amongst neighbors who are committed to bearing one another's burdens. That is a powerful wake-up call Mm -hmm. to the church. And so how do we begin to live this vision? And as a black man in the church, as a black man in America, how do we move forward? What needs to change? What do we still need to learn? Um, you know, as we, as we think about birthing a new denomination uh, in, the, in the next year or so, how do we do this well? How do we begin well and move from where we are to where we need to be? Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm candidly uh, leaning into the whole artist thing. I don't have a lot of answers. Um, and I'm, I'm learning to call that a beautiful thing. Uh, I will say, whereas I don't have solutions, like a, a detailed plan, I do have, a, I think, a pretty good inkling of what we're supposed to be longing for right now. Uh, so there's a line in Galatians 3 uh, where, you know, in, Paul's pretty like, adamant about saying there's no more Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. But he, he then goes on to talk about there's roles for males and roles for females. Um, and he, he ministers differently in Corinth than he does uh, to a, a, a more – I uh, guess to the church in Rome. So like, he, he understands there's a difference and there's nuance. And so I don't, I don't see Paul making a claim for sameness. I see him making a strong argument for oneness. And I think we've kind of called those things the same thing and they're not. Uh, sameness says that we all got to look the same, think the same, act the same, vote the same. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be what's on the heart, the mind of, of, of God, definitely on the heart of Jesus. Uh, I think there's a desire for oneness in the body of Christ. Uh, and oneness, to me, the signs of oneness looks like we are all in deep longing for the same kingdom. Um, I think that you, you can have a different political view than me. I don't care if you're a donkey or elephant, wherever you lean, you can have a different one. But that, that's the sameness thing because we have to vote the same. Uh, but a oneness thing says no matter who you vote for, no matter where you find yourself on either side of those things, we have a longing for the same God. And we recognize that no matter what their campaign says, all these folks are broken. Um, but if the gospel is true, then, then our hope comes from a king, not necessarily a, a government. And so I guess if the king has a monarchy, it's a form of government. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but but, but oneness has all of our hearts fixed, uh, fixed in the same direction. Um, there's a, there's a, a story I wish the Bible told, Luke 15. It's like after the prodigal son comes back in the house and the older brother comes back in the house, like what does that conversation look like? <laughs> Um, but that I think is a picture of oneness. It's, it's two people find themselves at the table uh, and for different reasons they were gone, uh, but they're both back for the same reason. There's oneness in why they're at the table. It's because the father, I think that desire for oneness is what leads us forward. I don't know what it looks like fleshed out, but I think it's kind of like that, you know, John 15, abide in the vine, whatever fruit comes from it, orange, apple, whatever. I don't care about the fruit. The fruit gives glory to the father, but the focus is abiding. And so that desire for oneness, I think, is the only way we move forward. Because I can, I can want to be one with you and disagree with you all day long. But as long as my desire for oneness supersedes my desire for sameness, we'll be okay. Um, we'll be fine. I think there is, especially thinking about a new denomination, um, a desire for oneness, I think, is, is going to look different. Uh, it's hard to flesh out, but it has to be at the forefront of our minds if we're going to continue. If we're going to walk and keep in step with the Spirit together, like, there has to be a desire for oneness. We can disagree. I'm cool with disagreeing. As long as that desire for oneness, that Jesus is going to be named as king, we submit to his authority, I'm, I'm with you. I'm all the way with you. And yeah, so I think that it comes with a posture of humility. Um, I think it comes with a posture of not always having to be right. I think that comes with a, an acceptance that we are broken and flawed in many ways. 
Um, that's the whole point of grace anyway. Um, and yeah, I think creating space for, and another point is I think there's a generation that could care less um, about denominational lines, but cares a lot about how we respond um, to issues of justice. Um, and that generation, again, could care less about the name of a denomination. They are gonna, they're gonna know you by, by your, your, your love and know us by how we actually live that out amongst each other. And so that oneness has to be fleshed out in a way that is, um, that is seen before we even show up. Um, it's heard before we even start talking, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, desire for oneness over sameness, I think is, is the only way forward. How you flesh that out, I don't know, um, but, but do that. So, so I, always have, I always have a question to ask authors, because I mean, this is your baby and you know, you, you've now published it. And, and uh, what's your favorite poem in the book? Uh, I think my favorite poem in the book is Turn to Your Neighbor and Say Jim Crow. <laughs> it's my favorite. That's awesome. Fun name. Uh, but it, it, it walks through um, the experience of being like the only black person in an all white church. And it's an interesting ride, it's an interesting journey. Um, to write it was fun uh, and cathartic. But then I started sharing it with a, a few other friends of mine who I knew were minorities. Um, in all white spaces. And I actually, the, the first friend I shared it with, um, he's actually Hispanic um, and he works in an all white church and similar tension. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's some assumptions that things look the same for all of us. And uh, the assumption that like, we don't call things white or black churches, but we do, or Hispanic churches, but we do. And wondering why that's a thing and how it would be ignorant to say that there's no such thing as a white or black or Hispanic church, but there is. Um, and to learn how to like live into that and like to recognize that tension and to, again, no answers there, but it was super cathartic to flesh out and hopefully it's liberating for other folks to read it. Thank you for that. Yeah. I, I, I'm excited for people to, to get this and, and to, to, and not just read through it. It's not the kind of book you just read through. You've got to kind of digest it um, and, yeah. and read it like Psalms. I mean, I think there's a devotional aspect to, to the way the book is written and the introduction is powerful. And uh, we're just really excited to be able to, to share uh, your heart and your work with, with our listeners who are going to be blessed by it. And especially with Christmas coming up, it's coming up right before Christmas. This is a good, uh, good opportunity for people who are looking for books that, that are not just the standard fare. This is, this is really powerful stuff. Thanks man. I really appreciate it. My hope is that folks like sit down with it for a little while um and then sit with it in front of a friend over over a meal and just flesh out some ideas and thoughts like again no right or wrong answers um there's, there's, there's no pop quiz at the end of it um <laughs> uh, but I, I hope is that that art does put us in a position of just you know, empathy and um and, and again desiring desiring that oneness that i think only jesus offers mm -hmm. yeah for sure okay so lo tell us how we can find your book and where can people find you online so I am not quite cool enough for Twitter yet. I'm debating. I think I'm going to get a Twitter. <laughs> I think I'm going to get one. But all my handles are just Lo the Poet. So L-O-T-H-E-P-O-E-T. -E -E uh, that's on Instagram or Facebook. Um, you can go to Lo the Poet and like Google it and like videos and stuff will show up or whatever. And uh, We Sang a Dirge is available. It's actually linked on all of my stuffs. Um, but you also type in We Sang a Dirge book and it'll come up on the Googles. Seabed has it on their, um, on their website. 
And yeah, I think there's like a thing come December 3rd. Super excited about it. Awesome. That is so great. Well, and I know that Bob will put the information in the show notes for our listeners, but Lo, we just want to say thank you so much. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your ministry. Thanks for taking time with us today. It's just awesome to get to know you better. Thanks for being here. Y'all are so cool. Thank y'all. We look forward to hearing more from you in the future. You're a gift to us. So we, we appreciate it so much. And we want to thank you all for joining us. Tell others about the podcast here, uh, Holy Conversations. We're, we're excited to have folks like Lo on and, uh, and, and reveal this powerful gift to, to the church that, uh, that is among us. So uh, you can follow us online um, uh, on Podbean or on your favorite podcast platform. Email us your comments and questions, podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. We are on Twitter, so make sure you follow us when you get on Twitter, Low, We're at WCA Pod, and uh, leave us reviews. Um, and again, share the word. Uh, we're really excited. We're, we're again, we're over 14,000 downloads, and, and by the time this airs, probably probably closer to 15, 16,000 downloads in our first year as we wind up our first season. So, so lots of people checking in, check out Lowe's book. Um, it's going to be a great stocking stuffer. And uh, thank you all for joining us once again on Holy Conversations. This was indeed a Holy Conversation today. We look forward to seeing you next time. See you then.